Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future. Welcome to our second edition in a speaker series that a group of us have put together over the next couple of weeks in recognition of the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. The series are meant to be a forum to meet and recognize and highlight women who have been successful and influential and impactful in all different industries, law, politics, entertainment, sports, corporate boardrooms, etc. So today, I, and I am Samantha Jessner, I'm a judge on the Los Angeles Superior Court. I'm currently the supervising judge of the Civil Division, and I'm going to act as the moderator today as we have a conversation with two women who have clearly excelled in two different industries, Charlotte Jones on the one hand in football and sports, and Jana Winograd on the other hand in the entertainment industry. So let me start with a brief description for Charlotte and then Jana. And certainly there are more details in their bios that were distributed along with the announcement. And then we'll kind of get into what I hope will be kind of a freewheeling conversation about several different topics. So first, starting with Charlotte Jones. So Charlotte graduated from Stanford University with a degree in human biology, and I believe her emphasis was organizational management. She joined the Dallas Cowboys shortly thereafter in 1989, and she currently serves as the executive vice president and chief brand officer of the Dallas Cowboys, which means that she oversees all of the business operations, strategies, and applications having to do with the team's worldwide brand. Um, She leads the Cowboys in things like brand marketing, fan engagement. She's now become an expert in stadium design, entertainment, licensed apparel, and more. She's recognized as certainly one of the most powerful women in football and also in sports. She has served beyond the organization of the Dallas Cowboys. She was named the chairman of the NFL Foundation. She has served on NFL committees, including the Conduct Committee, Health and Safety, and the Legalized Sports Betting Committee. Notably, she has been the first woman to serve as chairman or chairwoman, more specifically and accurately, of the Salvation Army's National Advisory Board which is one among many of her philanthropic endeavors and leadership roles in that space. 
And perhaps most importantly, she is the mother of a daughter and two sons. So welcome, Charlotte. Um, and now let me tell you a little bit about Jana. Jana Winograd graduated from UC San Diego and then made her way to Berkeley Law, where she graduated Order of the Coif. She then went to Munger, Tolls, and Olson and practiced there for several years and then joined ABC Entertainment um, and began what would turn out to be a 23-year career with ABC. Most recently there, she was the executive vice president and head of business operations, and she oversaw the network's business endeavors, budgets, and she was key, played a key role in strategic planning. She joined Showtime in 2017 as president of business operations West Coast, and she currently occupies the position as president of entertainment for Showtime Networks, Inc., she is responsible for developing and supervising all aspects of Showtime's programming. She oversees production, program operations, business affairs, scheduling, and research and home entertainment. And she is raising two daughters with her husband, Todd. So welcome, Jana. And it is my pleasure to have the two of you sort of dedicated, at least for the next hour or so, to what I am sure will be an interesting and challenging and insightful conversation. So I'm going to kind of give you the topics, develop some questions, and kind of let you run with the subject matters, starting with this notion that you have both excelled in industries that have traditionally been dominated by men. And that obviously is sports and football on the one hand and the entertainment industry on the other. And I think it's probably fair and accurate to say um, that you continue to be one of the few women in the room, to borrow the, that phrase. Um, so here are a couple of questions to start out our conversation. Once you're in that room as either being the only woman or one of the few women, how do you ensure that you are heard? Um, how do you deal with being one of the few, if only, women in the room? So let me start with Charlotte, if you want to take a, a stab at, at answering sort of that series of questions or themes. Uh, well, thank you, Sam. And it is a pleasure to be here with you, of course, and then also with Jana, um, an amazing company because, Sam, you are certainly my rock star and someone <laughs> that I have always admired and looked up to. And for those of you who are not aware, Sam and I went to Stanford together. And oftentimes we sit back and laugh now because I'm not really so sure we were the ones that were the first in line at the Career Placement Center, but we knew that we'd end up someplace. Uh, maybe we didn't <laughs> see each other or see ourselves in the positions that we now are, but we, we certainly enjoyed our Stanford career together. And, you know, as Mike took a step back just to maybe describe kind of how I got to where I am, because it certainly was an unconventional path for me from the beginning, um, because I never thought I'd have a career in, in football. I was a cheerleader in high school, and that's about as close that I ever got to the sport and certainly didn't think that was my passion. As, as you mentioned before, um, I do have a degree in human biology. I went to Stanford thinking that I was going pre-med. My whole goal was, was to make a difference, was to make an impact. And I thought at that time it might be in the hospital system. I quickly realized after that core that maybe that was not the path for me, that I needed to try something else. And when I left Stanford um, with my human biology degree, I went to the place where I thought I 
could make the biggest impact, and that was Washington, D.C. My dreams were kind of shattered there because they weren't really on the same schedule that I was on in terms of trying to make an impact. And, you know, that probably was my harder part of my career in terms of, you know, trying to make a difference and trying to make a statement and being a female on the Hill versus where I eventually found myself in sports. So while I was actually in D.C., my father decided to buy a football team. And in that journey, he came to visit me in D.C. and basically said, this is what I want to do. He had a history. Um, his, his prior career was in oil and gas. And he said, this is, this is what I want to do with my life. Do you agree? I don't actually think he was looking for my approval other than just an endorsement to say that he wasn't crazy. Actually, he kind of was crazy at the time. You know, the Cowboys really weren't doing very well financially or from a public opinion standpoint or success on the field or anything of that nature. But he told me about the opportunity. We blessed his opportunity. He went back, bought the team in Dallas. And about a year later, I got a call when I was sitting in D.C. And, you know, the crazy thing, he said, Charlotte, do you have any idea what hot pants are? And I thought, this is the craziest call I've ever received from my dad, who's supposed to be running a football franchise, which actually at the time was losing $75,000 a day and over $2 million a month. And the team was three and 13. And he was from Arkansas trying to take a Texas team. So all of the news and vilification probably was deserved, but also pretty intense at the time. And I was wondering why he would call me in D.C. about hot pants. There was a rumor going around that he wanted to change the iconic cheerleader uniform from biker shorts to hot pants. And if you know my dad and Sam does, um, that's not exactly what he thinks about all the time. So I do have a background in dance like Samantha. So he called me asking my opinion on that particular issue. You know, I kind of laughed and he's like, I've got a problem. Will you come down and fix it? I went for the weekend. I literally thought I was going to Dallas for the weekend to to deal with a a PR crisis. And when I got down there, you know, my dad took a deep breath and he said, would you come to work for me? And I said, I don't know anything about running a professional football team. And he said, that's okay. Neither do I. And he said, you know, I just need someone around me that I can trust. And on that, I packed up my bags in Washington and I moved to Dallas and I saw this. I didn't actually see it as an opportunity at the time. I saw it more as a crisis. My father needed help. He didn't know what he was doing. I certainly didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I would lay awake like he did at night trying to find a way to make the best next step. And, you know, when I got there, you know, I found a broom closet, you know, to put my stuff in. And and I asked him, you know, I saw him walking down the hall and I said, okay, I'm here. You know, what do you want me to do? And he just looked at me and he said, find a way to stop losing money. And whatever you do, don't tarnish the star. And that's about all of the mentoring that I got. This was not a career path that I set upon. This was not something that I raised my hand and said, hey, you know, I want to come down to Dallas and be involved in football. But I went because there was a need. And I went because the person who brought me in trusted that I would make the right decision. And that really set me on a path to not pay attention to the noise that surrounded all of us, literally, at the time. And criticism that I got for being where I was was probably muted by the overall criticism of what he was receiving. And so in that role, I learned really quickly to kind of shut out the outside noise and to focus on the task at hand. And I'm now looking back on a 30-year career uh, in the NFL, and it's like something happened along the way. And I looked up and football was my career. You know, it's a good thing that my 
kids love it because I'm not so sure that I would have the same kind of support um, around the breakfast table for all the burnt toast if they didn't love my job. So, you know, now I think about it and I think, why is my opinion validated? Why is it needed? Why is it important? And when I take a step back and look at the NFL as a whole, and certainly our organization on the forefront of that is our game is 45% female fans that support our game. And our voices as females are significant, but they are important to the strategy of the direction that we choose to go to build our brand and to build our organization. So in that fight along the way of, you know, why are we there? I I think if we could do our best effort to quiet the noise that might be in our head of do we deserve to be here or an outside noise of does someone else think that we should be there and realize that there is purpose and intent of the voice and the message that we have to share. Thanks, Charlotte. Jana, what are your thoughts about the rise of your stature and your positions over what is now, what, three decades? And how it is that you can make sure that you are heard and have an impact as one of the few women in the C-suite, so to speak? I'm in an industry, as you mentioned, that is a little different than football in that there have been a lot of women up to a certain level. So, you know, when I first started, even when I first started at ABC at the network, it was, I had been in the legal department. That's how I made my transition from Munger to being an executive. And I had come in in the legal department at ABC. And after I'd been there for a couple of years, my mentor, and I know we'll talk about mentorship later, Mark Pedowitz, who worked at network entertainment called me and said, you want to come in, you can be a director of business affairs. And so for me, that was, you know, an opportunity to really get out of traditional legal and get into the business side. And I decided to move over there. Well, at the time I went, which was 1996, that was the year that Jamie Tarsus was named president of ABC. And Jamie Tarsus at the time was my age. So she was in her early thirties. And she was the first female network president. We could go on and on about how she was treated in the press and her career and whether she was given a fair shake as a woman in that job. But the truth is that when I went to the network, my peer was the president of the network in terms of she had a lot of television experience, but age, being a woman. And so I definitely had examples of the see it to be it. I was not in a situation where every single person around me was male. That being said, if you then looked up and, you know, we're always looking up from a different place. And as you get higher, you're sort of looking up at a different level. But as you looked above Jamie and you looked to the C-suite, those were pretty much all men at that point. But as I progressed through my career at network entertainment, we would go in and out of phases, but there were times when basically every department head was a woman. Those were the best times, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) It really wasn't until I got to a certain level where I was sitting in meetings with, you know, the CEO of the company, the CFO of the company, the head of strategic planning, where I found myself in rooms where I was the only woman. You know, people always say, how do you make yourself heard in those rooms? And I always say, well, the first rule is you can't be heard if you don't speak. Because some people walk into a room like that, and all of a sudden they're intimidated, and so they don't speak. And 
obviously you're never going to be her. That's rule number one. And then I would say rule number two, as Charlotte said, is just, you got to just tune out the noise. I think especially, and Charlotte and I have a similar situation, which is that before I went to network entertainment, when I first was in a business affairs role, I was working in a job where me and my counterpart had never done it before. And we didn't really have a boss that had ever done it before. And so like Charlotte, we were sort of coming in and not making it up as we went along, but learning for ourselves what was right and what was wrong and sort of making the determination, well, I'm smart, you're smart. If we think this makes sense, let's do it this way. And I think when you start that way, it gives you a certain confidence about your decision-making skills and your ability to think outside the box because you're sort of writing your own rules as opposed to walking into a situation where all the rules exist and you're just trying to enforce them. And so I do attribute part of that to giving me the confidence that, you know, you walk into a room and I look at my job as being paid for my brain, my judgment, what I think, what I think is the right thing to do. And if I walk into a room and no matter who's in that room, whether it's all men or all women, I don't exercise that judgment and say what I think. I don't feel like I'm doing my job. You know, it's interesting because a phrase that I've heard used a lot right now, you know, during this pandemic kind of harkens back to something you just said, Jana, which is we're all learning how to fly this plane, but it's already in the air, right? Right. And so the only skills we can bring to the table are sort of intelligence, a willingness to work really hard and try to figure this out. And it sounds like what both of you are saying is, well, let's just roll up our sleeves and do whatever it takes to figure this out. To me, that's one of the biggest qualities I look for when I'm hiring. To me, it's never about, did this person do this exact job before? It's always, do you think this person has the ability to take the innate bandwidth they have work really hard and do the best job and have good judgment. I would add to that, Sam and Janet, it should probably be of no surprise that women excel in that area because you think about the way that God made us. We have children and they don't come out with a rule book of like, here's here's what you do. There is no manual. We're just figuring it out, right? You're just trying to figure out life out as, as you do this and take care of this and multitask that. And you have all of these hats and, and nobody told you how to do it. So when you get in a situation and, you know, I truly believe that, you know, naivete is is sometimes your greatest asset because you haven't been told no enough to know better to not ask. You know, it's like you just go and you ask and you learn from it. You know, one of the greatest things my father told me when we were starting out is um, he made it very clear that he didn't have all the answers. And I, I think this was also the benefit of starting in a family business together versus joining a family business after it's been established, that he said, I know you will fail, but I also know that you'll learn from that and you'll figure out tomorrow how to do it differently and how to make it better. So he he didn't fear failure. And so he didn't put that fear in me in, in trying to create and figure out how to mark our own trail and, and to create things. And what we did know is the way things had been done before didn't work. That was the best learning ever. And then it was a free canvas to say, just go, go try to figure it out. And I'm lucky that I did have that great support early on of someone having more confidence in me than maybe I had in myself and saying, that's okay. Just keep going. Just keep going. 
that was a definite asset to where when you did run up into somebody who was maybe not a believer or doubted your strength and ability that, that you just become unfazed by it and you just keep moving on and, you know, let them, let them sit back and watch. You know, it's often the case and I'm dismayed sometimes to see this, especially with women, people of color, members of underrepresented constituencies or communities that when somebody who falls into one of those demographics has success, there's usually a whole chorus of people that want to take away that person's success and that person's intelligence and work ethic and say, well, you know, of course you're successful, your dad owns the team, or of course you are, you are where you are because you knew so-and-so and so-and-so is usually a man, or you were able to check this box on an application and to get a little bit colloquial, you know, haters want to hate. And why should we not quote yes. Taylor Swift? The same week also when we're seeing this whole Instagram phenomenon, exactly. amazing women being challenged. Anyway, so maybe this is part of that sort of turn out the noise, but what is first starting with Charlotte, and then I'm going to kind of ask the question in a slightly different way to Jana. What do you do or have to say, or how do you respond to people that want to take away sort of everything that you bring to the table because of the fact that your father owns the Dallas Cowboys, for example? You know, as we discussed, Sam, that is probably my bigger challenge than even being a woman in a, in a man's field is that the assumption is that, well, you got there because of your father. Yes, I did. Genetically, I got here because of my father. I am here and my father wants me here because of who I am and what I have to contribute. I think we always feel like we're trying to prove ourselves to to the doubters. You know, my, my father always taught me that that's, that's just the background noise, that as long as, as we believe in each other, and I like what you're doing. Why does it matter what anybody else says? You've got to hear that over and over again, because I think sometimes, you know, as women, we're our own worst enemy is is that we don't get up and look in the mirror and go, man, you're a rock star. You know, we need somebody to like cheer us on and go, yes, you are. You can do this. You can do this. And I, I think that we're good at cheering others on are we as good at cheering on ourselves as we are others? And I think in that setting that it really takes that belief in self to not pay attention to that. Social media is one of the, one of our worst inventions that because the haters, they come out and we tend to hang on to the hate as opposed to the things where people promote us and lift us up. And I, I think that's kind of a natural thing that we have inside of us of, of, are we as confident? And, you know, I, I hope that, that everybody would, you know, wake up at their day and look at themselves in the mirror and said, I deserve to be here. I am smart enough. I am confident enough and I am better than the next. And I think that that self-belief um, is is kind of the, the key to trying to drown out the outside feedback. And I'm sure sort of part of that conversation that we're having with ourselves in the mirror every morning is, and I've worked seven times as hard to be here. And I've yeah. done an amazing job in doing that. Let me pivot to, to Jana and ask you a somewhat similar question, because I think refreshingly, you're going to have a response that gives us sort of an upbeat view, which is, have you felt as you have made your way up to where you are today that people have looked at you, especially in this sort of current environment over the last couple of years in the entertainment industry and beyond, and have said, well, you know, of course she was going to get that. She was the only woman, or it's because she's a woman, rather than based on your merits. 
First, I'm going to say you guys got to see an example of the balancing of being a woman. While Charlotte was speaking, my daughter was coming in to say, like, this is really important. You have to answer me now. (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) But I, I will say I am on the refreshing side of this one because I did not feel that way. And I never have really felt that way. And I think part of it is there were a lot of women in the room at my level and around me while I was ascending through the ranks at ABC. And obviously that makes a big difference. I also think I've been incredibly lucky with the people I have worked for and with. Because even though every single boss I've ever had has been a man, believe it or not, with one small exception, I would say they've all been men that love strong women and have surrounded themselves with strong women and had strong women around them as most of their department heads and key, you know, consigliaries. And so nobody would have said that because it just, it was in the ethos of where I was. And as I said to Sam and Charlotte before this, I actually got promoted to executive vice president while I was on maternity leave with my first daughter. And I hadn't asked for it. It just sort of like he, my boss came to me and was like, look, we're restructuring and this is how it's going to go. And you're going to get this job and you're getting promoted. And it was, you know, like a big shock and great. And I'm on maternity leave and look, we can do it all. You know, now that's not to say I haven't had challenges because I was a woman, because at the same time I was promoted, like my counterpart who happened to have been a man got promoted again, just so that he wouldn't feel bad that I got promoted. (laughs) And, and literally somebody said that to me, well, you know, we got an ego issue here. Like that would ever happen to a woman, right? We have an ego issue here. So we're going to promote her. But I've never felt personally, like I have somehow been, you know, looked at as, oh, she only got that for that reason. I, I just haven't been in that position. And it's also refreshing to hear that you have worked with men who surrounded themselves with strong women rather than being intimidated by strong women. So let me change the conversation and I'm going to start with Jana and talk a little bit about influences, people who have influenced you in your life, mentoring, who has influenced you or served as a mentor? um, And how did that person serve as a mentor as the sort of the first set of questions? You know, how did they end up providing you with that guidance? Did you seek them out or was it more organic? And and sort of have you then turned around and mentored others? So Jana, take it away. Mentorship has been a huge part of my career, both as a mentee and a mentor. I, as I said, I had a boss, Mark Pedowitz, who plucked me out of technically the legal department, moved me over to the network, and he was a mentor to me throughout my career. Even now, I talked to him yesterday in the best possible way, like in the way everybody dreams of, which is he hired me. He then two years in said to me, I see you as the future of this department. He then decided that it was his job to make sure that I could succeed in that job one day. And, you know, anybody who's been in a leadership position will tell you that it's not just being good at your substantive job. And in fact, 
some of the problem with a lot of leaders is that they're so good at their substantive job that they keep growing and growing and getting promoted, but nobody ever taught them how to manage or how to lead. Sorry, ignore the ringing in the background. And he really saw his job as teaching me the full package of skills that you will need to succeed in a corporate environment, whether that was how to manage corporate politics or how to, you know, solve interpersonal problems within a department, as well as obviously all the substantive things, which sometimes are the easiest things to learn, I find. He was also a man who had incredible EQ, like he was so emotionally smart, not just intellectually smart, and really was able to show me how important that is. You know, to be a good leader, you have to have followship which is sort of a buzzword at the moment, but it's true. Like people have to want to get behind you. So he also created opportunities for me. He gave me incredible exposure. And in order to grow in any job, you really have to be exposed to the people above you and they have to see you and not just hear that you're good at your job and you're smart, but see it. And and he really gave me those opportunities. I would count him as my biggest mentor. And in fact, when he went to go become president of the studio, when I was at ABC, you know, I did get his job. And to this day, you know, whenever I'm talking about a job, thinking about a job, thinking about what to do with my life, he is the first person I call. I call him the, you know, he's, he's the president of my board of directors and we all need a board of directors. That's another advice I would give you. Everybody needs a board of, a personal board of directors, but also because of him, I truly believe, and I know some people don't think this, and I'll tell you my experience with organized mentorship as well. Organized mentorship is great. And honestly, I've been involved with it at so many levels in so many different organizations, both as a mentee, where I got incredibly lucky at ABC and Bob Iger was my mentor, you know, 25 years ago, to being in that same mentorship program as a mentor. And just in my experience, the organic mentors that you have, the people who you work with that look at you and say, I see you, I see your capability, I am going to make sure that you can maximize your capabilities. Those people are invested in you. You know, they They know you, they feel you, and they want your success in a way that I have found is more difficult to create when when you're paired together. But it's sort of like you go on 27 blind dates. One day you meet a husband. You know, in mentorship, like I've had 15 different mentees in different mentorship programs, whether that was through the HRTS or through ABC's mentorship programs that they had, or right now I'm in a um, in an entertainment group that somebody started called Femtors and Femtees. Um, and I would say out of those 15, there are two that I just clicked with, that I've stayed in touch with to this day, that I've been champions of their career. Now, those aren't horrible odds, but they're not the same odds as somebody you work with that sees your abilities. So I personally have found that the organic mentorships tend to work the best. Also, the people who are organically part of your career are the ones that are generally in a position to actually help in that career. So as a mentor, when I was at ABC, for a time I ran business affairs. And in that job, we also had legal department that reported into us. And when I left ABC, the two women who took my job 
were two women that I had hired as entry-level lawyers and just grew up and got promoted, you know, through eight different levels. And I think I did for them what Mark had done for me, which is champion them, give them exposure. The greatest compliment of you as a mentor is if you leave, not to pat my own back, and the people you've mentored take your job. Like that's all of our jobs. Our jobs is are not just to be good at our jobs, but to make sure that you are creating the next layer, both just as executives, people that can can come up through the ranks and be good executives, but also it, you know, I as a woman think to make sure that you're paving the way for the people behind you. It's our job to clear the path because we're a bit older, you know, and I think we did enter the job market at a time when it wasn't as easy, but it's our job to make it easier for the people who come after us. At least that's my thinking. So I do think that mentoring people that are, whether it's women or people of color or the LGBTQ community, making sure that people have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. I've always looked at as part of my job, not just as a mentor, but as an executive. And it's really okay if you pat your back. (laughs) No apologies necessary. So Charlotte, let me ask you, picking up where Jana ended and then circling back around to your influences. Jana was basically saying, look, it's one thing to be a mentor, but it's also sort of our responsibility to not just mentor, but to to do whatever we can to develop that pipeline behind us of women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, whomever it is. What do you think of that? What efforts do you make? And you might want to use that elevator analogy And then perhaps you can talk about your influences and mentors. Jana, thank you for sharing because I I love hearing the process that you have have gone through, that you execute, that you lead, and and those that you have the ability to empower. But I also love that you lean in to those who organically put you in a spot to be able to show who you are and show your abilities so that you can be seen and move up and and be encouraged in that space. And I think that's so important. You know, Condoleezza Rice was speaking to us just a few years ago. And, you know, she said that if I was sitting around waiting for a mentor that looked like me, I'd still be sitting here waiting. And I think your acknowledgement, which is very similar to my experience, is that our mentors, uh, sometimes we falsely think our mentors should be who we are. You know, we need to see ourselves in that position. So I need to see somebody that's like me in that spot. So I know that I actually can do that when very rarely is that the case for for women, that mostly our our mentors are probably male. And, you know, Sam, I know you probably had this same experience and they they may be 75-year-old males and they may... They may look nothing at all like you, but the wisdom that they want to impart is so valuable. And for me personally, my mentorship structure was was far from structure. My father was in it. His mentorship was not, this is how you should do it. He was more, we've got this issue, come in, and this is where you're going to learn about it. We're all going to learn it together. So there was not a teaching component to that. There was a gentleman that worked down the hall from me that would leave his door open. And he was so loud on the phone that he'd go, you're just going to learn it. Just, just hear my voice as I'm yelling down the hallway on my phone calls. And literally, I mean, I didn't sit in his room, but I sat in the office over and he would let me listen in on all of his calls of like, this is how you do it. 
I may have learned more what not to do than I learned what to do actually from him. But still, it was, can you get that exposure? And for me, having had the kind of career that I have with the experiences that I've had, it's it's made me value that the need for being a mentor, but more importantly, being accessible to those who have questions, even if it's not in a formal structure. And, you know, I have believed that if you get so fortunate to work so hard to be able to take that elevator to the top, you've missed something if you don't send it back down for someone else. And I do have a young daughter. She's not so young. She's 27. And I hope that she actually does see someone that looks like her that's able to do something that she's aspiring to be able to do. But having those open conversations and leaving your door open so people can learn from you, I think is very important. Along the way, I did pick up some great support from people that were heads of other companies that simply just said, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe you did that. That gave me the confidence to then go on and do something else. Uh, Indra Nui is an amazing woman, and she was a chairperson of PepsiCo for forever. And she was so positive, so dynamic. And what she really did was not directly encourage me, but to talk about me and talk me up to other people so that then my credibility and my effectiveness was validated by somebody else. I think it's, it's, it's big picture things, but it's also the very little picture things that, that can make a big difference in someone's career. The point that Charlotte just made is such a good one, which is it isn't always about you know, doing that within your own organization. I cannot tell you how many times I have either been in a position where I've heard somebody did it about me or where I've done it about someone else, where you just make the point to make sure that other people know this person is good at their job. It's so important. And some people just don't do it, whether it's out of insecurity or just not thinking about it. You know, some people think that other people's success somehow reflects on them. And You just have to learn that it doesn't. The best thing in the world, right, is to have people who are smarter than you work for you because they make you look good, right? But some people are too insecure in their own. By the way, nothing in my house ever stops ringing. Have you guys noticed that? (laughs) It's like just ringing all the time. There really is this aspect of making sure that you are giving people visibility. And I think that that's a really important point. I love your notion of having your own personal board of directors. And part of that is you need sort of a chief marketing officer as well. Exactly. Yeah. I do think a point that you make really resonates with me, which is it's so rewarding to work in an environment where you're working with other people that do not think that if you are doing well and succeeding, that somehow takes away from their success and their influence. The ideal would be to be able to work with people every day where, you know, everybody's building everyone up rather than tearing them down either vis-a-vis microaggressions or sort of more overtly. Let me jump to an issue just because I sort of know one of the answers and I think it's a it's great food for thought. So the question here is sort of what advice or words of wisdom have you received along the way that was impactful or meaningful to you? And Jana, I'm going to start with you because you told us sort of a story about something that somebody said to you at a dinner. Yes. So I will tell this story and then I do have a couple other ones to add. 
the story that I told was I was actually a part of a group of senior female executives and we would have dinner, you know, once a month or once every other month. And at one of these dinners, there was always a guest speaker and the guest speaker was the first female dean of the UCLA Business School. And one of the stories that she told was that the question she was always asked by generally women was what is the most important factor that determines somebody's career success? And her answer was, and she believed it to this day, the most important choice you make is your choice of a partner. And I just found it so interesting because it has It has proven to be true in my career that I was lucky enough that my partner, my husband, was incredibly supportive, incredibly willing to do, and willing and had the ability. I mean, obviously, you have to be in a position where somebody has the ability to do it, but had the willingness and the ability to be places that I couldn't be. And I used to call him my get-out-of-guilt-free card. Because I knew that I didn't have to feel guilty for not being in certain places because he was there, you know, but he also never begrudged me my success. He was standing in my corner rooting me on. And I always thought that was such an interesting thing, she said, you know, because we never really think of it that way. And I certainly didn't make my choice on that basis because we've been together since as Samantha knows, because I'll just tell everybody here, I was with her the night I met my husband, but we were much younger. And so I wasn't making my choices on that basis. And I just happened to get very lucky. I will say that there are a couple other pieces of advice that I've gotten along the way that I had found incredibly helpful. One was when Bob Iger was my mentor. I'll never forget. He said to me, and I can't remember how it came up, but I think about it all the time. He said, you want to be just ambitious enough that people know you want to succeed and that you want to get to the next level, but not so ambitious that people want to cross the street to get away from you. And I always thought it was such a great piece of advice because as you think about your career and you think about like, okay, I'm right here. If I want to get here, how do I do that? And there is always that fine balance. I mean, we all know those people that we cross the street to get away from because they wear their ambition like a second skin. So that I always thought was an incredibly good piece of advice. And the other piece of advice that I do think is applicable to pretty much any career was one of my bosses, actually the same one, Mark Pedowitz, his ethos of sort of being an executive or being a person in any corporate or work environment was never be a messenger. What that meant was in so many jobs, especially at a junior level, you know, you're, you're talking to one group, let's say that's an agent or a studio in order to make a decision with an internal constituency. And there are two ways you can do that. You can get the information and then go to people and say, this is what, you know, X, Y, and Z said to me, what should we do? And that's a messenger. You're basically serving as the intermediary between two groups. And his point was, nobody should ever be a messenger. Your job is to have an opinion. So you take what somebody else said and you always say, this person said this to me, here's what I think I should do, or here's what I think we should do. What do you think? 
And that's a completely different way of phrasing information because you're showing that you've thought about it, you've processed it, and you have an opinion about it, and you're looking for validation or input as opposed to looking for someone to tell you what to do. And I have to say, I've always tried to impart that to the people that work for me. Nothing makes me more, you know, annoyed than when I see emails that are like, I heard this, what do you think? Because you want, and you want people to develop not just the skill to do that, but when other people see them do that, they see and hear them. It's what you asked about before, Sam, when you said, how do you make sure your voice is heard? You make sure you're always adding value. So that was one of the best, best, not just pieces of advice, but sort of ethos of being a person in a work environment that I ever got. And it sounds like another thing that you're doing by not just relegating yourself to the messenger as the messenger is saying, here's my opinion and you should listen to it. Exactly. Um, You know, exactly. this, this This is a value, as you said. So Charlotte, what's your input about advice or words of wisdom or guidance you've received that's really resonated with you throughout your career? You know, probably the the best piece of advice that I've ever been given, not surprisingly so, has come from my father, not actually as fatherly wisdom, but more as as how to live your life uh, as much as operate your company. But he always taught us to have a high tolerance for ambiguity. Never more important than today is that more relevant and impactful. And I have lived my professional career having an extremely high tolerance for ambiguity. You know, it basically is what we do. We work really, really hard to produce the best product. And then you got to just let it go. And you have no idea what's about to happen. You don't know if you're going to win. You don't know if you're going to lose. And you don't know if anything is going to work. You're just going to build up to it and try to execute it the best you can. The outcome is out of your hands. In that vein, I mean, you can kind of attach that to everything that you do. I have found, though, in these past few COVID months that that tolerance for ambiguity, I realized that I am really good in that scenario when I don't know what's going on, but I've always had a sound foundation that is always continual. And when you remove calendar from your situation, that our calendar no longer becomes relevant, that you, you have no point of reference on which to execute. And in this day and age, when we are all working in ambiguity, that you don't you you had deadlines that now you're not sure when the deadline actually is and and how do you you know motivate the people around you to keep working as they they normally do in an unpredictable environment when no one knows what's going to happen and i think being able to be calm and cool in those moments that clearly make most all people nervous is really a unique skill set because someone's looking for an answer and if no one can give it you've got to figure out how to settle the storm. I'm glad that I was have been so successful in the ambiguity because right now it's really testing me. <laughs> yeah, well structured chaos is better than chaos, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and a deadline for the end of the chaos is certainly helpful and and you know, I think what I've learned picking up on the ambiguity tolerance scale is those of us who work in the justice system and courthouses, we're not very high on the tolerance ambiguity (laughs) scale. I mean, we're sort of used to, all right, here's your trial date and everything's going to work off of that trial date. Well, that's all been out the window. So 
if you have spent years and decades honing your skills in the face of ambiguity, you're way ahead of many of us. <laughs> in today's day and age, and I know this is true in, in my industry, and I think it's true in almost every industry, the pace of change has accelerated so much that you have to be comfortable. You know, being comfortable with ambiguity is being comfortable with change. Yes. And you, if you can't get comfortable with change, you can't grow. Yeah. And certainly we very much differ person to person as to how much we embrace and deal with change, right? Yes. Let me ask you a question, Jana. Uh, uh, we talked a little bit about this in our um, previous conversations that has to do with sort of the notion of checking unconscious bias. And we talked about this in the area of hiring. I told a story about a panelist that I'd recently been on a panel with who then told a story much better than I will do about how she can look at a, a set of people in a room and think, look at all this potential. And her male counterparts look at the same set of people and say, I don't see anybody that I think we can hire. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of your recognition that you might fall exactly into that type of unconscious bias thinking and what you do to try to check yourself? This was a story that I, I had told Sam and it arose out of this notion, you know, obviously unconscious bias is very much in the dialogue right now. And somebody once said to me, and I think it's general knowledge, and I think it's part of this book, The Hidden Brain, which is everybody has unconscious bias. There's nothing wrong with unconscious bias. The important thing is that we see our biases and we check them before we take action on them. And, and the story that I had told was that we were interviewing for a creative executive. The woman who runs that department had met this fabulous woman and she had sent her to meet me and I loved her. And, you know, my executive and I were talking and we were talking about how much we love this woman and she's so fabulous and she was so funny and then all of a sudden we sort of looked at each other and we were like, because she was just like us, like she dressed like us. We were all Jewish. We were all relatively of the same age. We all grew up in big cities. It was one of those where we had this like very clear moment where we all of a sudden recognized, well, of course we loved her. She was, you know, very familiar to us. But that didn't mean she was the right person for the job because we are in a creative endeavor where what's important is that everybody think differently. We need people who can look at things from every different perspective. And the fact that we thought she was great and she actually had amazing credentials didn't mean that that made her the best person for the job. What might make somebody the best person for the job is somebody who is a little less comfortable for us, because that's the person who would be coming in and providing a different perspective. I have to say the most dangerous word in hiring is fit, because I think people always say, oh, this person be a good fit or this person won't be a good fit. And then the question is, well, what does fit mean? Fit means Everybody will feel very comfortable because that person may be very familiar. And one of the things we talk about a lot is how you get under the word fit. When you're saying somebody is a good fit or not a good fit, what does that mean to you? Is that the right criteria for the job you're looking for? Should it be a criteria at all even? 
you know, you want somebody who's smart, who gets along with people, who can bring added value, but is fit really the right thing you should be looking for? Because it is basically the word that encompasses unconscious bias. You know, I had drafted some questions and ran them by this organizing committee, and I had a question for both of you having to do with what advice do you give your daughters? And there was more to the question sort of in this Me Too environment and the recent events. And and another person on the committee said, you know, I'd actually be interested to hear what advice they would give to a son. And so, so Jenna, you don't, you don't have a son um, or Charlotte has too. So I'm going to direct that question to you, Charlotte. And, and really what I'm getting at is, is sort of this, um, what do you say to your boys now men about, you know, sort of how to value women and, and sort of the um, importance and benefit of involving women and and women's perspectives in whatever it is they do. Well, and I'm I'm so glad you made made time for this because as much as we like to to talk about our daughters and empowering women, you know, it doesn't work if we don't empower men the same way, especially young men to appreciate the value of women and and respect the value of women and respect the value of others. Um, what I think is is so great, and I have had many an interesting conversation with with my boys about so many different topics. And as, as you can imagine, particularly for us, um, you know, our our locker room, pretty much whatever happens in society happens in our locker room, and then it gets magnified when it does. And so it brings a lot of educational opportunities home for us to talk about all of these things that that other people are doing that they shouldn't be doing, and how you should be handling certain situations. Um, but what I have found most rewarding is that seldom, and I, I might say I have never had to talk to them about the value and importance of women, of, of their intellect, of their ability, mainly because they have had a front row seat for their whole life. And, you know, I'm love the fact that my boys are so engaged in what I do. It definitely helps that I do football. But the fact that what my son wants to talk about when I go home is, mom, are you going to be the next commissioner? Mom, are you going to do this? And I, so the the point is like, mom, you need to put that aside. That's not important. This is what you need to do. That they're, they're every bit, they're part of my board of directors of, of how should, how can I put myself in the next position to be, be successful, that they're the ones giving me advice. And I love that I don't have to tell them that women are capable, that they're, that, that you should be respectful, that I certainly remind them of that all the time, but their feedback alone um, gives me faith. And, and it certainly gives me confidence that, as, as we watch other women succeed in what they do, that hopefully there is some osmosis happening around other dinner tables of people using great examples to be able to illustrate a story, but respecting the value of, of what the moms themselves are, are able to communicate at the table and how that makes such an impact on them. So we have used up our hour. I feel like we could talk for another hour or two or three, but I'm sensitive to the fact that both of you have been so generous in uh, giving of your time and your thoughts and your wonderful words. 
Um, so I just want to say thank you on behalf of the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association, which has done all the logistics and the marketing, as well as our other sponsor organizations. It's been great. And I think we uh, have all been very interested and feel great value in having this opportunity to hear what you've done, what you've brought to the table and how you're bringing others to the table and hopefully enabling them to succeed. So thank you. Thank you. And have a wonderful weekend. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at LACPA.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee, the Honorable Nicole Bershon, the Honorable Michelle Williams-Court, Julie Gerchik, a partner at Glazer Weil LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke. We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACBA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast.